everybody, Montel here, and thanks so much for tuning in today to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And I'm so excited about the guest that we have today, and I know you will be too when you hear her story. Our guest today is a self-taught visionary leader and entrepreneur. She is an e-commerce pioneer, a corporate executive, a cannabis activist, and now she is running for the District 21 seat in the Utah House of Representatives in 2020. Her name is Stormy Simon. Stormy, thank you so much for being with us today. Montel, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I was really psyched about having you on the podcast because I think your story is is such an inspiration and could be such an inspiration for so many women out there, so many men out there today, especially those who have given up hope and don't want to look into the future as brightly as you looked into yours. So why don't you take us back for a second and let's talk about your past before we start talking about your cannabis advocacy. But you were mothered age 17, correct? That's right. Yep. Age 17. It was uh, three months before, or maybe four months before my 18th birthday. Wow. Got married and you've got one child and then you went ahead and had another child before what, age 21? Yeah. I actually got pregnant at age 20 and decided to leave my marriage. Um, I was married four days before my 18th birthday and decided to leave my marriage at that time while I was pregnant, which seemed crazy. And that's what people said. You're absolutely crazy. And that had to be scary for you, correct? It was, it was the scariest thing to be alone um, with two boys and well, one boy and one on the way, but also scary because you know, the world was concerned. My, my circle was saying, oh my gosh, you know, you've made mistakes. Uh, this is so early to be a mom and have this responsibility. And so it was scary. I found myself on welfare at that time. And the scariest part was, how am I going to raise these boys alone? Um, what is it that I'm going to do? And how do I get there to do it? But that fear became a fire. And it started driving me to motivate, you know, you got to get up, you got to feed these kids, you've got to work, you know, my dad gave me this really work ethic, he gave all of us kids, you know, you work hard, blue collar workers work hard. And that's what I did. So you took on part time job after part time job after part time job, right? (laughs) Yes. And I I got a few good ones, you know, I was a producer of a successful morning show here. And, you know, that gave me some experience and fun and exposure. A producer of a morning show, a morning radio show, right? That's correct. With no experience prior to that job. Yes. <laughs> yes. Wow. So yeah. Incredible. And then, and then you, you, it's very, very interesting because uh, you had a conversation with a psychic, right? I did. So early 2000s, when the internet was just getting accessible and there were all these new things to do, a friend and I decided we'd go on this website where they had psychics and we paid $1.99 a minute, probably some of the best $1.99 a minute I've ever spent. And this uh, psychic told me that what I needed to do was go into a temp agency, which was interesting because I hadn't done that before. I had really found every job at the newspaper, circling positions, getting my mailing in a resume because fax machines weren't around back then. And 
a couple days after the conversation with the psychic, she also told me some key points that all turned out to be true. She had said, you're going to be working on computers. You're going to be doing a computer thing and with a very high profile man and, you know, all these little tidbits of information. A couple days later, a really good friend of mine, Holly, said, I have two friends. I was looking for a job in between my world, wondering again, the hell am I going to do? And Holly said, go to this temp agency. It's woman run. They are looking for people to place in jobs and just go in there. And I did. I walked in, met these two women, and they told me about a dot com that had come into Salt Lake City that had, you know, very unique leadership. And they needed good people to send in. And my resume wasn't too shabby at that point. You know, I'd done a handful of different things, but I had done them pretty well uh, and had good titles by the time I left each of those jobs. Uh, So I did. I had her send me into what was overstock.com. And it is phenomenal because your journey started as a temp at overstock.com but ended up as the president of the company. Come on, (laughs) you got to explain that to me. How did that happen? You know, it was a time I don't have a traditional education. I didn't go to college. I tried a few times. It was really hard with two kids. And, you know, I went in and the internet and e-commerce and shopping online was sort of unheard of. You know, Amazon was selling books. eBay was like, hey, you want my Pez dispenser? But it was consumer to consumer. And here was this company that was selling odds and ends, you know, like jobber stuff, the things you would find, you know, close out merchandise, literally. But every day you would go in and people would be like, what do we do today? How do we do this today? And I felt that I was in this environment where we really, nobody really knew there wasn't a playbook written on it. And I wasn't afraid to speak up or have ideas. And, you know, they worked. They worked. You created multiple departments within that company, correct? Yes. I started uh, actually cold calling. It was one of the worst jobs I ever had, which was cold calling for business to business sales, where we put some stuff online to consumers and then the other stuff we would have to flip. Uh, I had great success there. And I had never done sales before. It was really hard, actually. But I did. From there, I moved on to uh, run that department. We grew that to about 20 million before we, you know, merged it with the rest of the site, took on PR, and then wrote the Discover the Secret of the Big O campaign and pitched that as a television commercial. And I, I got it through the board and got it through our conservative leadership. And that commercial propelled us from about 250 million to 500 million in the course of 18 months. And it just exploded. Exploded and exploded your career because you then obviously jumped up to vice president and then president of the company, right? Yeah. I moved on from there to start different departments, what we called skunk works and, you know, things we were trying out or attempting to do. And a couple of those I was able to take into profitability. And then that led to, Uh, customer service, which was something I really wanted to run. Um, We had outsourced everything. And I came up with the term customer care because it was our only touch points where we could touch a human is when something went wrong because they weren't walking in our store and, you know, was able to take the department into, you know, what was a costly department into an affordable department, but providing great customer care along the way. 
Um, after that, I took on, uh, I became CMO. And from there, I took over operations. And from there, I became president. And along the way, it was almost as if I carried the departments I built with me. So becoming president felt like a natural next step. What I think was so valuable to me and the career was being able to be hands-on while a company, you know, when I joined did $18 million in 2001. And when I left in 2016, it was at, you know, 1.8 billion. And that is an amazing experience for not having gone to college and to be able to see that and experience it and just have so much business happen in front of my eyes was something I will be forever grateful for. And you also took the female management participation in that company from 7% up to 33% before you left. Is that not right? Yeah, that just gave me chills again. That's one of my proudest accomplishments. Um, And it was not just management at the director level. It was executives. It was vice presidents and senior vice presidents. Um, You know, things that I'm proud of at Overstock, we had 25% women in development and technical development which wasn't easy to find over the years uh, as you know, the IT departments were heavily dominated by males, but we were able to get it to 25%, which was really great at the time. But increasing female leadership as executives at the table in the state of Utah to 33% was a good feeling and it still is. Not just Utah, any company in America, it really, should be a really good feeling. But even after all of that success, you decided to leave the corporate boardroom. What, what triggered that thought in your head? Well, you know, that one's so interesting. It was 15 years later, um, very, you know, male-dominated leadership at the, at the very top. And, you know, I had parents that worked in blue-collar jobs for 30 years. And that always scared me is that I wouldn't experience as much as I could in life. Like I thought I want more than one experience and curiosity has always led me. The self-learning has always, you know, relying on myself to learn and to succeed, I think, you know, came into that as well, but every good marriage comes to an end and it was time for me to move on. You know, they were offering me CEO, uh, the current, the CEO at the time. And you know, I felt like I had done a lot there and I wanted to know what was next and maybe a little bit of a midlife crisis, who knows, but um, cannabis was also happening and curiosity in that moment propelled me to make the decision. And this cannabis was happening, but not happening openly in Utah at that no. moment. Cannabis no, no, no. still has not been, been made legal. Even, is it, is it, have they now passed the medical marijuana law in, in Utah? Yes, they did last year. It's okay, medical. so they, they finally last year. But when you decided to step away uh, and get into something called cannabis, I am sure that the majority of people and the elders and everybody else in Utah went, what are you doing? You know, that was a real eye opener. So at the time, I believe Denver and Washington were the only states that had adult usage in 2016. And it wasn't widely, it was still considered a subculture. So when I step down and say, I'm going to go work at a uh, grow with two medicinal dispensaries in Denver that was doing about maybe 3 million a year, people, and I expected everyone to go, we're so proud of you. Oh, we love this about you. But what they did, you know, my, my circle at the time were like 
that is illegal. This is the worst move you could ever make. Why would you do that? Why would you walk away from your tool belt of uh, skill sets? And in my mind, I really thought about the end of the prohibition. You know, I was born outside of Chicago. So the whole Al Capone thing was part of the conversation. And when you, or uh, the end of, you know, alcohol prohibition. And when you think about history and think back of these movements that have happened, I really felt compelled to be a part of the movement. Now, would I get to be, you know, as fancy of a title as uh, I had it overstock? Who knew? But to be a part of it, to watch it from the front lines instead of the sidelines. And I didn't realize at the time that there was so much uh, hesitancy among the business world or fear about really getting behind this plant and normalizing it and making it mainstream and a part of the conversation. And that excited me. And I've always been a bit of a rebel. Um, and the more that that pushback came, the harder I wanted to go through because I believed in it so much. And were you at that point in time, were you a, a, a I don't want to say recreational, adult use person in Canada? Yes. Yes, I was. And I feel like that's something that people shy away from too. But we're learning as I learned by working in those medicinal dispensaries, it's a medicine. So your reasons for using, you know, regardless of what state legalization was in our United States, um, there's a medical thing behind it. You know, there's, there's a reason. I used it to unwind at the end of a day. It helped me sleep. I am not a drinker. But I also feel like you know, as science is being proven, we have less need to make excuses. Absolutely. And I've, I've been a proponent and been talking about this now for close to 20 years is the fact that most people who gravitate towards cannabis rather than gravitate towards alcohol are doing so because they do have an underlying medical reason that they may not even understand themselves and lack of sleep, anxiety, you know, lack of being able to relax or the ability to expand your, you know, creative uh, mindset. There are several things there that cannabis does that people don't give it credit to and think that, okay, if you don't have, you know, a disease like I have MS, then you just must be a recreational user. No, you're not. I think that the underlying reason why a person chooses cannabis over alcohol is because they have an underlying medical reason that they sometimes won't even admit to. So, yes, and the world has many crutches. And for some reason, this particular one has been demonized. And, you know, unfairly and discriminatorily. And demonized, demonized only in the last, you know, 100 years, because before that, for 3000 years before that, it was looked at as a regular part of cornucopia. It was a regular part of medical, you know, treatments. And it was a regular part of life before, you know, 1937, when we actually decided to make it illegal under what was called the Marijuana Tax Act. And a lot of people don't understand all the racial implications that were involved in that decision back then. It had nothing to do with a medical agent or its ability or the fact that it was a drug. It had more to do with the fact that those people were using it and we needed to have a way to inca incarcerate those people. We still see that same thing going on today. We do. And that has become uh, such a big drive in my advocacy and activism for this plant is I studied what happened 
you know, 1937 on. And during those Senate hearings, the American Medical Association were on the floor saying, do not criminalize tax or anything with this plant. We have studies that need to be done. Um, study, you know, and wasn't just medicine, it was textiles, it was paper. There were a lot of political reasons as to why this plant was, this plant was smothered. Absolutely. People don't understand that William Randolph Hearst and Charles DuPont were two of the biggest advocates of people who were really against funding Henry Anslinger and all of his work to make sure that it was kept made illegal. And also, we have to recognize, and this is something that and I'm, not, I'm not just saying this now because of the particular social unrest that's going on in the country, but we have to recognize that you know there has been a mindset in America of always keeping people of color down. And there's been a mindset that when we lost the ability to put them in chains through slavery, there was a way to chain them in prisons just by making this product illegal and making sure that we flooded the community with the product so that we had more reasons to arrest people. If you look at the arrest rate right now in America, still to the day, 80% of those who have been arrested for marijuana violations and put in jail or prisons are people of color. And there's a reason for that. And I just got a, somebody just sent me a really good friend of mine, sent me an article today, you know, that just completely blew me out the door. I don't know if you know this or not yourself, but there's an article out here right now that talks about what's going on in California since California's legalization of marijuana. And in California, the numbers are still going up disproportionately with the number of people who are black and or African-American and people of color who are being arrested still for minor marijuana, you know, violations. And the numbers are going up annually when we, this is a state that has legal cannabis. It's an, it's, you know, current situation included. If folks are wondering why uh, Black Lives Matter needs to be said and acknowledged, read history. Anslinger used foul language when describing how marijuana, uh, at the time, those were the words, marijuana was uh, used by people of color. And it's, it's, it's so hard to think back. That was 1937. And to think, you know, my mom was born in 1939. My dad was born in 1931. I am one generation away from people that were raised in a racist America. That's just a fact. We can't rewrite history in that. And the statistics that you speak of, those are facts. They're not, we're not making this up. We need to acknowledge it. It's like currently, right this minute, in 2016, Black people accounted for 32.2% of all marijuana arrests in Los Angeles. And last year, that portion rose to 42.3%, according to the LAPD data. And Black people only make up 8.9% of the city's population, which is absolutely ridiculous when you take a look at you know, the fact that, meanwhile, white people accounted for 20% of all marijuana arrests in 2016. Last year, they accounted for only 11.5%. Hispanic, non-white, were roughly 28%. So again, as you see, it's a war against people of color, even in a time when this product has been legalized. And it's still the same across this, every one of the states. I mean, every state's trying to incorporate some sort of a, you know, uh, reciprocal or, 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 or expanded program where they're allowing for 
minorities to participate. But when you can look at that, that's really kind of almost a false statement in the majority of the states that have these kinds of programs, minority participation. Yep, I agree. And it breaks my heart. You know, it does. It breaks my heart that we are still living. It's 2020. We're not acting created equal. Um, and it is absolutely, when you go back to when Nixon decided this was a schedule one drug and the war on drugs was used against people of color. That's just what it is. Yeah. And then you look at Nixon had making that sense. He made several openly racist statements about making sure that you flood the neighborhoods with those things that will help with arrest. And then, you know, but you do this at the same time that a country is funding marijuana or cannabis research overseas. And then the same country applies for and grants itself its own patent on cannabis back as early as 2001. So we are really in a place right now where I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, the truth needs to be told stormy, but you know, it's going to take people like yourself to be the truth tellers, I think. And which brings me to the next thing, because a lot of people may not know this, but, you, you know, your entree and ascension in the cannabis world was almost identical in some ways to your ascension in Overstock.com. Because you started off as a grower, basically working in a field, working, you know, to put the products on the shelves. and ascended to become the CEO of High Times. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's crazy. I, you know, starting when I joined that operation in Denver, it was really to follow the plant from seed to sale. And every bit of it, all the bureaucracy along the way, all the unfair taxes that these companies go through, these entrepreneurs are some of the most heroic in our history for the loopholes that they've had to jump through to be identified as a credible business. And I'm here to say they are credible, they are passionate, and they are making this medicine happen. And I never want that to be forgotten when we go, when the federal legalization hits and pharmaceutical companies get to participate and make a bunch of money. The people that have moved this forward are just regular Americans that have a passion and, and knew better, right? Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. That's something that I think this industry needs to understand and recognize itself. I say it all the time. You know, a lot of people who've gotten into this industry, especially since, you know, we have the move towards adult use in so many states, forgot that back in, you know, 1998, 1997, 1996, there were people dragged out of their homes in Northern California on gurneys with IVs in them. They were patients who were using and growing cannabis just to live. And, you know, the audacity of us as an industry to forget that and want to just be a B2B organization, we forget that this was an industry built on the backs of patients. And unless every single person involved in this business gets it in their head that they want to make sure that above all the profits that you make, let's get the patients off the battlefield. That should be the mantra of this industry. And this industry doesn't seem to want to embrace that. They still are so worried about how quickly they can outdo the other guy who's trying to get in this business or outdo the other business that's trying to get in this business. We need to be spending more time focusing on patience, patience, patience. That's what will actually move this, this business forward. And 
I know a lot of people don't say, let me do this right before you. I know you want to say something. Let me do this. I'm going to take a little break. I got to pay a couple of bills. You know, you've been listening to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And our guest today is Stormy Simon, who has an incredible business entrepreneurial history that I'm really, I'm, I'm just enjoying sharing with you today. Let me take a little break. We'll come back and I'll get that comment as soon as we start, Stormy. Thank you for being here. Let me take a break. We'll be back right after this. So thanks so much again for tuning in to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And today's guest is Stormy Simon, who is a self-taught visionary leader entrepreneur. She's an e-commerce pioneer. She's a corporate executive. She's a cannabis activist. And now she is a candidate for the Utah State House of Representatives in 2020. Thank you so much, Stormy Simon, for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today. Thank you. I love being here. Thank no, you. absolutely. We love you. You wanted to say something because I was, I, I kind of railed a little bit and I apologize, but it, I, I get so angry. Me you know, too. I attend a lot of the conventions around the country. I had been before, you know, COVID struck and, you know, I, I walk into rooms where there could be, you know, 800 to 1500 people all interested in the cannabis business, but all of them have a knife in their back pocket, willing to stab the person sitting in the chair next to them in the back to see if they can get ahead of them before they get ahead. It needs to stop. This industry has got to figure out how the only way we're going to move this forward and get to a place where there's going to be, I think, federal legalization and national legalization is if we decide to come together as an industry and work together for the benefit of all. The, the profits are there. They're not going anywhere. You know, what we need to do is work for the benefit of all to get us all, you know, what's that old saying? A rising tide lifts all boats. Yep. No daylight between us. And federal legalization is a dangerous thing because it falls in the hand of pharma. And when I joined this industry, you know, it was early on, like we talked about, uh, and folks were afraid to get in or to understand or to even participate or to act like they might, you know, people that I knew had utilized the plant. Um, were completely shielding themselves. Like, I can't, I would never tell anyone, I would never do that. Um, what happened over the course of so quickly when money started showing up and coming in and the, you know, Colorado and Washington was having such great success, their tax dollars were coming through. A lot of those same people that were shunning me in the beginning were emailing me on LinkedIn, like, hey, how can I get in? What is it that I can do? For me, the opposite happened. I came in, learned about patients. I came in and started speaking at different events. And every single time, every single time, a black woman would approach me and tell me how this particular plant had ruined their family in some sense. A son, an uncle, a dad that goes in for 25 years for a plant in his pocket, 50 years. These sentences were outrageous. And it, 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 it broke my heart. I mean, it makes me speechless because I can't find any reason why we would go ruin people's lives over a plant. Um, and that started moving me in a different direction because I thought in the beginning, you know, I'm going to go be a part of this industry. I'm going to touch marijuana. I'm going to sell cannabis. I'm going to do that. But I can't do that until everyone can do that, until people are freed from our prisons. It is a statement. You know, how do we move forward? It's not okay to come into this business or this industry as an executive or anyone else and not be aware of what's happening in our prison systems. And a lot of them are privatized. So these are money going to whoever for whatever reason, um, hitting quotas and using uh, people of color to do so. It's unexcusable. 
it is 100% unacceptable. And even if it's a state by state issue, uh, as people, we have to be empathetic to that fact and not lose sight of it. There are families who have been ruined because of, a, of this plant that happens to be medicinal, um, you, know, you can make it organic, you know, it's, it's safer than a lot of other crutches or medicines that we use today. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm working right now really hard and maybe we'll reach out to you to see if you want to help participate in it, but I'm, I'm working really hard. You know, again, COVID has slowed everything down, but I'm, I've got a little bit of an initiative going right now with Snoop's, Snoop Dogg's uh, production company trying to see if we can raise more awareness around the incarceration and what has happened. Really tell the stories that's happened across this country and let people know those those stories are still happening today, though maybe, you know, the length of sentence may not be the same, but the stories and, and lives ruined are the same. And people need to know, even though, you know, there's a lot of people go, oh, no, they, that, was, that was 20 years ago. No, it's not 20 years ago. It was yesterday. You know, that there's a black kid in this country who was walking down the street somewhere in this country and he probably got arrested for marijuana, which is really stupid. Whereas in the same, you know, in a neighborhood on the, on the other side of town, there was a Caucasian kid who literally the policeman, you know, told him to put it out and put it back in his pocket. Excuse me? Yes. Yeah, so there's a lot of work to be done. What are some of the challenges that you also face now? And what are you doing in the industry now that you, well, you, you ascend it to the highest position in high times, and then you stepped down from them. I did. I did. And it was, you know, I loved high times. Being in Utah, I had two older brothers, and that was where I could read about this plant, even as a teenager. You know, it was the only place where someone who had been drawn to cannabis found other people that didn't treat it as if it was criminal. So I was drawn to high times. I joined the board in 2017. And when I stepped down as CEO, I also stepped down off of the board. Now I was there for maybe four or five months. The COVID hit during that time. And I found myself, like I think a lot of us, just re-identifying again who we are or who, what really matters. My family matters. Uh, food, water, shelter. That's really what we need. The idea of taking care of everyone matters. Um, integrity matters. And who I spend time with matters. And after chasing, you know, that job and that dream, um, I also was strong enough to walk away when it didn't align with, you know, some of the things we just talked about. Um, where I think cannabis advocacy needs to go. Now, I don't, I believe in a capitalistic country. I think that's all fair and good. Um, but I also believe more than ever now that my efforts and where I put my energy and time has to be more soul-filled and passion-filled and have meaning when you see homeless people on the street, when you talk about the injustices against people of color, and when you think of what this plant being used as a weapon to people of color has been like, and that's where, um, that's where I find happiness now. Great. So, so now, what what are you working on right now? Then I'm really running for office, which is crazy because I would, you know, today. Are you a politician, Stormy Simon? No, I don't think so. But I am a citizen, and uh, I live in a district that's very rural. This is where I grew up. It's been 
10 years since a Democrat has held this office and 30 years since a woman has. Uh, the state of Utah is comprised of about 104 people in the state legislature. 17 of them are women, last I checked. Uh, the need for diversification, diversification across our country and in these seats, you know, I complain about government. So what do I need to do? Kind of get involved. I, I'm not much of a complainer, so I need to take action. And I started this thinking I need to inspire people to take action. People in cannabis and cannabis advocates are not a subculture. We made something amazing happen. We got ahead of the federal government. We got ahead of the pharmaceuticals and we pushed something along that needed to be pushed along and it was the right thing to do. Um, we should not hide anymore. We should come forward and start becoming the leaders of this country. Uh, it will be very hard for me to swing the votes I need to swing in this district. But I think I'm, I'm not afraid of that. I'm more afraid that if people like us don't start stepping forward because we don't look like current politicians or we don't speak like current politicians. We have proven that once we band together, once we grab a hashtag and once we take to the streets, we move the needle and we make it happen. And so I've become pretty passionate about the fact that I am doing that. Um, I need all the support I can get. <laughs> there you go. All right. And you think it's going to be, you're fighting an uphill battle? Yes. And we all are. And, you know, what's, what's been the reaction on the constituency about the fact that you've had such a, a large amount of involvement in the cannabis industry? Well, the Democratic Party has been very supportive of it. I think we've won in Utah for now, um, having it medicinally available, even though I'd love to see the ailment list expand. Um, I believe that, you know, growing a plant should be legal for all, uh, not owned by the federal government or a pharmaceutical company, you know, what's next, lavender, basil, and cucumbers. You know, we have to be very aware of how we're treating a plant at this time. Um, but they've been supportive. You know, it is legal in our state. It is legal in many states. And si you cannot deny science. And we all know science is coming out to prove very heavily in our way, in our favor. Uh, so they've been supportive. You know, I haven't had any debates or any pushback really from the other side. So we'll see how that lands, but um, I'm proud of my advocacy and activism with the plant. I am very proud of it. And you launched your own podcast now also. It's called Lunch with Stormy, right? Yeah, I just launched it a couple of weeks ago and it's um, features, it's really about folks that have reinvented themselves. You know, I found leaving my identity at Overstock, then building one in cannabis, which was hard because when I came in, people thought she's one of those corporate folks. And I really did have to prove that I'm, I'm not, I might have had great success and great titles, but my soul always remained the same, which is, you know, of the people i'm 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 in the bell curve i'm not on the outskirts when it comes to social issues and um advocacy for this plant uh so it's about reinvention you know my guests so far have been tori hart and she's you know had a famous husband got divorced and has reinvented herself many times and then peter brady just aired and he's reinvented himself many times his name's christopher knight in real life but you know, it's about people that find their second chance and make it, you know, we, I, we get labeled with these titles and you've done the same. You've done, you've had so many lifetimes. I'd love to have you on the show. Um, you've had so many lifetimes, but it's hard 
you know, it's, it's hard and people hit rock bottom so many times. And these stories of people that, you know, can face that head on and share them have been really inspiring to me. And I found um, comfort there. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So, you know, um, well, anything else you want to share? Uh, let's see. What would I want to share? Well, I guess my website's about stormysimon.com. And I would appreciate any support from anyone. This is uh, the most vulnerable I've ever made myself, I think. And it, that in itself is very hard. I, my podcast is available on all of the podcast platforms, but my website, stormysimon.com. And, you know, I'm looking forward to getting more involved with um, assisting people in federal prison and helping them find their way out when they have nonviolent cannabis crimes and making this plant a part of mainstream and Main Street and empowering people to speak their voices and follow things that they want to do, even if it may not be the most popular decision. The individuality of us is what makes us so great. Uh, and I want people to be accepted regardless of color, religion, idealisms, and all of it. Well, you know, we may reach out to you and talk to you a little bit about a couple of projects that we have that we're working on ourselves that are in the cannabis space and uh, to do exactly what it is you're talking about. I think the biggest issue right now is that, you know, one, education, education, education. Uh, unfortunately, you know, this industry is its, you know, biggest, you know, uh, adversary in some ways because we spend more time trying to educate from a B2B standpoint than we do from a B2C. It's B2 consumer. And you mentioned it earlier, you know, it's like baby boomers right now, I think, and, and our generation is the generation that really could use cannabis the most and has the least amount of in information about cannabis that they could use to actually help navigate this space themselves. And so there's a lot of work being done in that area. I'd like to talk to you about it if you have time sometime in the future. And, you know, um, I can't say thank you enough, Stormy, for being a part of not only this industry, but also having been a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thank you so much for having me. It's just been great to see you again. Absolutely. It's been really wonderful to see you again. One more time, give out your website so people know where to go. StormySimon.com and VoteStormySimon.com. And I wish the whole cannabis community was in my district because I'd feel uh, like I had a lot more support. Oh, you would definitely have a lot more support. <laughs> you know, I, spent, I used to spend a lot of time in Utah. I was probably there at a house up in Jeremy Ranch for a little while. And uh, I used to come to Utah, um, honestly, for about eight years in a row. I was there every year from Thanksgiving until the, they closed the resorts and uh, big snowboarder. And I uh, enjoyed my time there. But I know that there is a large cannabis presence in the state. They just have to all rally behind you. Well, I hope that they do. I, I, uh, you know, they've been fighting an uphill battle and they won. They got the first part done. And I'm really proud of that. Yes, absolutely. Will you take care of yourself? And for all of you who've been listening, you've been listening to Stormy on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And I can't say thank you enough, Stormy, for being here. And anytime you want to talk to us, please come on back. I would love that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. Join us on the next Let's Be Blunt with Montel. 